amen. Good morning, good morning. It's so good to see you. Aren't you glad to have a nice, warm worship center that we can gather? Aren't you glad we're not meeting in an open-air assembly this morning somewhere outdoors? My vehicle said it was 15 degrees uh, on my way in this morning, and that is cold. In fact, I actually saw that it was so cold in our nation's capital that all of the politicians had their hands in their own pockets. <laughs> That's pretty cold. That is pretty cold. Hey, let me mention uh, just a few things. You know that uh, today is really a, a day that we've set aside uh, as Southern Baptists all throughout our convention of churches uh, to, um, to just keep in mind the sanctity of human life and to keep that ever before us as, as people. And I'm so thankful for the strides that have been made uh, in our nation in recent days. Uh, we've got a long way to go. But you know what it means to be pro-life it really is we as the people of God believe that human life is special and sacred and there's dignity uh, that every human being has just because people have been created in the image of God. And so a few ways that we as a church support the sanctity of human life, you think about as a church, uh, we financially support uh, New Life Family Outreach, which is a very important ministry uh, in our area, and there are various needs many of you individually are able to respond to a number of your life groups. Uh, you um, do various things. Uh, this month, we're collecting items like diapers and baby wipes uh, for the ministry, and so thank you for your support there. I also think about the Baptist Children's Homes and just what a tremendous ministry that this has been here in our own state for so many years. But you may not know this, but we have recently adopted Blackwell Cottage there at the Baptist Children's Homes, and very soon we're going to be hosting some foster care events, sort of like we did last year with our event that went to support seven homes. And so we're also working through a support plan for those who may be in the process of fostering or adopting. And so we've got some men and women in our own fellowship right now who are walking down that road. And so it means so much to know that they have a supportive church family to be able to come alongside them and to help them adopt. And I just believe if there are those within our fellowship who are willing to open up their home and to adopt and provide foster care even, then others of us who perhaps can't do that or may not necessarily sense that same calling in our life, I can tell you what we can do. It's financially help and support those who are walking down that road. And so that's what I believe it means to truly be pro-life. And so thank you as a church for all that you do and all of your involvement there. And so we're just so thankful. If you've got any questions about how you perhaps could be involved, I'd encourage you to contact us in the office. You can email Meredith Snowdy in the church office and find out more information. Well, if you have your Bible, turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, where you'll know that a couple of weeks ago we began a study of this profoundly important book of the New Testament. Some have said that what the Constitution is to our country, in many ways the book of Romans is to our faith. Because it's the most in-depth, plainest, grandest statement of the gospel in the entire New Testament. 
And really, within its chapters, the Apostle Paul presents us with just this devastating picture of the human condition. The lost, uh, alienated from God, we cannot save ourselves. Law-keeping will not lead us to salvation. And, and Paul is very clear and specific, especially in these first few chapters of Romans. But he then reveals the overwhelming wonder of God's solution to our dilemma in the redemptive work of God's own Son, Jesus Christ. There was a commentator from a generation gone by who said that when the epistle to Romans appeared for the first time, it was to the church a word in season. And over the course of the ages, every time that it has recovered the place of honor to which it belongs, it's inaugurated a new era. That is, it's life-changing. The truths that are set forth in Paul's letter to the Romans will absolutely change your life. And if we grasp what the Apostle Paul writes in these chapters, we will truly never be the same. Now, I spent all of our time last week in verse number one as we began. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, okay, you said there are 433 verses in Romans. Last week, he preached just one. Now, listen, I promise you we're going to move faster beginning today. And so we're going to work through this introduction that goes all the way through verse number seven. But keep in mind, Paul, he's writing uh, this letter to the church at Rome. He's never been to Rome, but he wants to pay these Romans a visit. And so the purpose of his writing really is to ground them in the gospel, which he intends to preach once he gets there. We know that he's uh, writing from Corinth at the close of his third missionary journey. He's going to make his way to Jerusalem. He's going to deliver a relief offering to the saints there in Jerusalem. He then is planning to go to Spain and preach the gospel in the western part of the Roman Empire. But on his way, he's going to stop in the city of Rome spend time with these believers, and enlist their support of uh, his ministry westward. Now, that doesn't happen because Paul, when he goes to Jerusalem, he's arrested. And he eventually makes it to Rome, but he does so as a prisoner of Caesar. And so he's writing this letter then, introducing himself as well as the message that he intends to preach. And so you're there in verse number one. I'm going to ask that you stand with me this morning as we read the scriptures together. These precious words of introduction from Paul's own pen to the believers in Rome. And he says in verse one, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations." including you who were called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to speak from this subject this morning, the gospel according to Romans. Because in his introduction here, the Apostle Paul is clear 
as, as far as his subject is concerned, he's writing about the gospel. And he's going to explain what that means. And so would you pray with me? Our Father and our God, we are so thankful for the gospel. It is indeed good news to everyone who believes. And Father, we thank you for the opportunity and the privilege that we have, Lord, to be able to be gathered together to worship, to belong to a church family such as this. God, thank you for the access that we've been given to your truth. And Lord, may that not be something that we take for granted in our lives. Father, as I stand and preach this morning, I pray that you would use me. Lord, may your words affect change in the hearts of your people. And we pray all of this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And thank you for standing. You know, introductions are very important. Pastors and those who teach or those who speak on a regular basis will tell you that the introduction of a speech or a sermon or a lesson, it's very important because if you're not careful, you can lose the attention of your listeners in your introduction. And if you lose their attention, you're just toast as a speaker. Screenwriters will even tell you that oftentimes the most important part of a film is the first few minutes where we're introduced to key characters, key places, key events. Uh, As an illustration of this, I was thinking about the uh, 1939 classic, The Wizard of Oz. Most of the time, over the holidays, that movie is on TV. I've always loved The Wizard of Oz. Whenever it's on, I like to watch it. But if you're familiar with that film, I mean, imagine that you've never seen the first several minutes of that movie. I'm talking about the, the black and white scenes where the first several minutes it's in black and white. It's set against that rural Kansas backdrop. There's a tornado that's tearing through the plains to transport Dorothy Gale and her farmhouse somewhere over the rainbow to the land of Oz. But if all you know about that movie is the bright technicolor scenes, you'd have absolutely no clue what was going on. You wouldn't know who she is. You wouldn't know where she was uh, or how she got there. Well, the same thing is sort of true in our study of Romans because the introduction to this letter is very, very important. And you'll notice that really the first seven verses that we've read It forms one long sentence with several phrases packed in between Paul's own signature and then his address down in verse number 7. So it's really the longest introduction in any of Paul's letters, and as such, it begs our careful attention. Now, one thing that we need to keep in mind as we read Romans is that Paul oftentimes, uh, he makes statements in parentheses. That is, he'll say something, And then parenthetically, he'll say something else and then come back to his original thought. And it's really a masterful way that he lays out his logic. And we see him doing this often throughout the 16 chapters of the book. And that's something that he does here uh, in the opening verses where he introduces himself in verse 1. And then parenthetically, he introduces his subject in verses 2 through 6 before finally addressing the Romans themselves there in verse number 7. So verse 1 says something about the man himself. How did Paul view himself? Well, he's a servant of Christ Jesus. Doulos, 
He's called to be an apostle. Jesus Christ has put a divine claim to his life and put a calling upon his life to preach the truth, to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And he sees himself as being set apart for the gospel of God. And so notice that phrase there, the gospel of God. So that's his subject that he introduces. And then he has several things to say about the gospel in verses 2 through 6. That word gospel, it's a word that he uses at least four times all the way through verse 17. He says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God, verse 1. Down in verse 9, he mentions the gospel of his son. Verse 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And then in verse 16, he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God to salvation for those who believe. And so his key idea here, his subject is the gospel. Now, if you're following along in the outline, there's a key principle that I want you to see from these verses. And that key principle simply is this. God's redemptive plan to rescue sinners from their sin has always been the gospel of his son. Did you know that? Uh, what is God's plan uh, to rescue humanity from the sin problem? It's always been the gospel of his son. And I think that sometimes we miss that. Sometimes I feel like our approach to the gospel is almost as if it were God's plan B. After the law, uh, after Israel failed, well, somehow God had to come up with a plan B uh, to spring to action to save humanity from sin. But the reality is, Paul is telling us here, even in this introduction, that the gospel has always been God's plan, his one and only plan of rescuing sinners like us from our sin. And he's doing so through the gospel of his own son. Now, that word gospel, it translates a Greek word, euangelion. It's a very important word. And it's an announcement of good news. And often when you and I hear that word, we automatically associate it with Christianity. We think gospel, well, that goes along with Christianity. But you might find it interesting that the word itself didn't begin as a Christian term. In the first century, it was a political term. Uh, in the Greco-Roman world, going all the way back to Alexander the Great, this word euangelion was uh, used to describe some history-making, world-shaping report of some military victory or some political conquest by the king or by the emperor. If the king won a great battle, then he would send out messengers who were known as heralds, and they would be sent forth with the euangelion, which announced the victory. You think about the Battle of Marathon in 490 B.C. It was fought between the Greeks and the Persians. And the Persians outnumbered the Greeks two to one. But despite those odds, somehow the Greeks managed to defeat the Persians. So that after the battle, the Greeks, they sent out these heralds to take the euangelion to every village and town to inform the people of the great victory. So you might remember the story of the runner who brought the euangelion all the way to Athens, and he ran the distance of 26.2 miles from Marathon. <laughs> when, he got, when he got to Athens, he fell over dead. So you go ahead and keep running your marathons. <clears throat> well, 
This word was picked up by the writers of the New Testament uh, to describe the announcement of victory that Jesus has won through his death and resurrection. And so when you understand it in that light, doesn't it really take on brand new meaning to you? When you understand that the the gospel, the euangelion of Jesus Christ, this is the announcement, it's the news of his victory over sin, over death, over hell, over the enemy. And then you think about our English word gospel. It comes from an old Anglo-Saxon term, um, um, Godspell or good story. That's what it means. Gospel is good story. And that's what the gospel is. It's the announcement of this wonderful news, this story of what God has done to rescue us from our sin. And you say, okay, well, pastor, I've been around the church for a long time. I understand that the gospel is good news. So you're not telling me anything I don't already know. Well, let me ask you this question, though, because this is a pressing question, maybe a more important question. Is the gospel good news to you personally? Because it's one thing for you to say, yeah, the gospel is good news, but it's another thing entirely for you to say the gospel is good news to me personally so that I've come to experience just how good the good news really is. Can you say that this has been your own understanding and experience, that this is good news of joy, what God has done in Jesus Christ. So Paul wants his readers to know that there are several wonderful things about this gospel, the euangelion. First of all, he wants them to know that the source of the gospel is God. Write that down if you're taking notes. The source of the gospel, it's God himself. Notice there in verse 1, Paul says that he's been set apart for the gospel of God. That is, this is the good news which has God as its source. It's not a message that originates with man. Paul says, this is not something that I myself have come up with. This is not the wisdom of the world, but the gospel has God as its source. So that it's something concerning God himself and what he has done. It's not an appeal for you or me to do anything. It's an announcement of what God himself has already done. And the issue is, will I receive it in faith? Will I believe this report? And so it's news to be proclaimed. It's good news to be proclaimed. Think about how this is seen in Luke chapter 2. You remember we were there in Luke chapter 2 back in December? You think about the angels who announced the news of the Savior's birth to those shepherds. So that the angel says this in Luke chapter 2 verse 10, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy. It's the same term. Euangelion, or the verb form of that particular word. And so you remember what the the, the shepherds do. After they witness firsthand that this announcement is indeed true, they rejoice. Uh, They worship. They glorify God. And so that's what happens when you come to believe the gospel and you truly come to embrace the gospel. You recognize that it's the greatest news that you've ever heard. And so think about how wonderful this is that the good news finds its source in God because it's God who's our creator. It's God against whom we have sinned. We've broken his law. We've despised his glory. We've trampled his love. And yet he still announces this good news. 
The news that he loves us in spite of what we are. That he loves us in spite of what we've done. And Paul later is going to say this in Romans 5.8. But God demonstrates his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so don't, can't you see then in that light how the gospel is such good news? And either this is the greatest news that you've ever heard or it's not. And if it's not the greatest news that you've ever heard, I would imagine that there's got to be some reasons for that. You say, okay, well, what are the reasons for that? If it's not good news to a person, what are the reasons? Well, I'll tell you what. Reason number one, you may have an inadequate sense of your own sin or an inadequate sense of your own sinfulness uh, to where you don't really see sin as being a big deal as it really is. If you don't see sin as being a big deal, and you don't see sin as being your number one problem, which has alienated you from God, then the gospel really won't be that good of news for you. I'll tell you something else that's true. Uh, if you have lost sight of what your sin really deserves, then you may perhaps have lost sight of just how good the good news really is. Because according to what the Bible says, you know what I really deserve because of my sin? Death, judgment, in hell. And that's the consequence of sin. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And Paul's going to elaborate on that later on in Romans. And so once you understand the bad news that I am a sinner and I cannot do anything to save myself, and if I got what I truly deserved, I would be in hell, eternally separated from this holy God against whom I've sinned, when I understand that, then really the gospel becomes great news because it tells me what God has done to rescue me from this dreadful condition. And so let's not lose sight of our need, the depth of our need, and then the magnitude of God's gracious provision in Jesus Christ. So that if you really, a lot of times people say, well, man, you know, I want to, I want to go, go to church to be able to feel better. But let me tell you something, there's sort of an ironic thing that happens because you'll never feel better until you realize the depth of your own sin and need. And then when that sends you to Christ, who is your only cure and your only solution, that is where joy is found. Because yeah, I realize that as a sinner, I've offended God, but thanks be to God, I've learned something in the gospel that tells me God has done everything that's necessary to rescue me from my helpless, sinful condition. And then the result of that is that the Spirit of God produces wonderful joy in my heart. When I think about what Christ has done, and I've personally believed all of it in faith. And so Paul wants his readers to know that this is the gospel of God. God is the source of the gospel. It's not some theological novelty. It's not, a, it's not an afterthought with God. It's not his plan B. But if you notice, he says that this gospel of God has been promised beforehand through God's prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That's what he says in verse number two. So the gospel then is not a quick fix. You know what a quick fix is, don't you? Uh, it's a temporary solution to something while you try to figure out a more permanent solution. That's a quick fix. I remember when I was small, uh, one year our family was going to the beach and we didn't get to go to the beach very much as kids. I think I only went maybe twice, uh, two or three times even before I was married. But I remember on this particular occasion, we got to go with 
my dad's sister and her husband and their kids, my first cousins. And my Uncle Brian, he's always sort of been a shade tree mechanic. And um, on the trip, somehow the van, the, the radiator hose sprung a leak. And my Uncle Brian, his quick fix was to run into a Hardee's and come out with a couple packets of black pepper, which he put into the radiator, which miraculously plugged the leak in the radiator hose. And it was a quick fix until he could do something more permanent. Now listen, I see some of you men right there. You're taking notes. You're thinking, black pepper. That's a quick fix. But the gospel, it's not a couple of packets of black pepper that God had to come up with all of a sudden to be able to solve a dilemma. No, Paul wants you and I to know that this, is, this gospel of God, it's something that he's promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures so that the gospel of God doesn't begin in the New Testament, but it goes all the way back to the very beginning, all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where God announces his plan of how he's going to rescue us. And so it's interesting, approximately 61 times in his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul either directly quotes from the Old Testament or he alludes to the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis is quoted five times. Exodus is quoted four times. Leviticus is quoted two times. Deuteronomy is quoted by Paul five times. First Kings is quoted twice. Paul quotes from Psalms 15 times. Proverbs two times. Isaiah is referenced some 19 times in Romans. Ezekiel is quoted one time. Hosea is quoted twice. Joel, Nahum, Habakkuk, Malachi, they're each quoted one time. So what you see in Romans, the Apostle Paul is going all the way back to the Scriptures, the Old Testament Scriptures, and he's showing how Christ himself is the fulfillment of all of those wonderful prophecies concerning this gospel of God. One way that you perhaps could understand the relationship between the Old and New Testament is through a helpful little saying. It's been helpful to me over the years, but it goes something like this. The new is in the old concealed, and by the new has the old been revealed. So that there you sort of understand the relationship between the Old and the New Testament. Apart from the Old Testament scriptures, the New Testament would have no basis. Neither would it make any sense. But apart from the New Testament scriptures, the Old Testament would remain incomplete. And it's significant that the Old Testament from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of Malachi, the last word of the Old Testament, the last thought of the Old Testament is that of a curse. So that there's sort of not this, there's no resolution to the plot line of the Old Testament. But the dilemma is solved in the person and in the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is what's being announced in this great gospel of God. So the source of the gospel is God himself. Now notice the second thing that Paul wants these Romans to understand. The subject of the gospel is Christ. If the source of the gospel is God, well, what about the content? Well, the source of the gospel is God, but the subject is Christ. Notice he says that this gospel, it's the gospel concerning his son. Verse 3. So ultimately, the gospel, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about the good things that you and I should do in life. 
The gospel is a declaration about Christ. And this is something that Paul came to understand. Not long after his own conversion, Acts chapter 9 says that immediately he was preaching Jesus in the synagogues. So that to preach Jesus is to preach the gospel. And so he is preaching this wonderful message of how Christ has fulfilled the law. Christ has suffered and died in the sinner's place. And it's his atoning sacrifice that's been accepted by the Father because God the Father has now raised him from the dead. And this is the gospel of God, which he has promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And it's all concerning his son, Jesus. And so what does Paul want them to know about how Christ is the subject, the content of the gospel? Well, four particular things about Jesus we need to pay close attention to. First of all is his identity. You'll notice there in verse 1, Paul mentions his name as Christ Jesus. He's God's son, mentioned there in verse 3. The son of God, verse 4. Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 4. He's Jesus Christ, mentioned there in verse 6. He's the Lord Jesus Christ, mentioned there in verse number 7. So that, if you pay attention to this, he mentions Christ no less than six times in just the first seven verses of Romans. Paul is a Jesus man. And by the way, if you're a gospel-centered Christian, you're going to be a Jesus man or a Jesus woman. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. Man, listen, someone says, I want to be so full of Jesus that when I get mosquito bitten, the mosquito flies away singing, there's power in the blood, wonder working power in the blood. (laughs) 71 times in the 16 chapters of Romans, Paul mentions Jesus. He's a Jesus man. Romans is a Jesus book. The Bible itself is a Jesus book that points me to place my faith and my trust and all of my confidence in Jesus alone. So that's the identity of Christ. But then Paul wants us to know something about his humanity. Because it's important there in verse 3 that Paul says something about the legal descent of Jesus from David, which he says was according to the flesh. So that means legally and physically in terms of his humanity, Jesus was a descendant of King David, and as such, he alone is uniquely qualified to sit upon the throne of David. And that's a fulfillment of the Old Testament covenant that God established with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. The prophet Isaiah writes about this same thing in Isaiah chapter 11. The prophet Jeremiah says the same thing in Jeremiah 23, verses 5 and 6. So, We know something about the identity of Christ now, the humanity of Christ. And then third, Paul wants these Romans to understand something about the deity of Jesus. Verse 4 says that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. And that word declared there, it translates a word that basically refers to marking something out for a particular role. Maybe your translation says appointed. I think the NIV uses the word appointed there. But don't don't understand that to mean that he had not been God's son prior to this point in time. Uh, There was a, a heresy that emerged in the early centuries of Christianity known as adoptionism, which basically said that 
Jesus was just a normal man who demonstrated extraordinary obedience to such a degree that God adopted him as his son. And so that's not New Testament Christianity. We know that he's always been God's son from eternity past. But in the incarnation, God becomes one of us. He takes on humanity and lives among us. And so then this word declared to be the son of God in power, this is just simply Paul, his way of saying that it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that marks him out, that distinguishes him, that sets him apart as the son of God. By the way, it's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that's put the entire world in a corner. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ which separates Christianity and the claims of Jesus apart from any of the other world's religions or their founders. The founders of every world religion, they're dead and in the grave. But there's a tomb outside of Jerusalem that's empty because Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God in power through His resurrection from the dead. Never forget the fact that we serve a risen Savior. You're going to need to remember that when you walk through those difficult, dark seasons in life and you lose your loved ones. Never forget the fact that Christianity is resurrection hope. Never forget the fact that Christianity is a singing faith. There's a reason we begin our worship services with singing and joy. Not just for the heck of it, but because we've got something to sing about. We've got something to shout about. Jesus Christ is declared to be the Son of God in power by His resurrection from the dead. You've got something to sing about, church. Get with it. Oh, I don't like the song. I don't like the music. I don't like this. I don't like that. It ain't about you in Jesus' name. You've got someone to sing to. He's alive and well. Lift up the name of Jesus. Magnify the name of Jesus. I'm turning into a Pentecostal preacher. <laughs> so, so Paul says, listen, you need to know something about his identity the humanity of Christ, the deity of Christ, but then the authority of Christ. The gospel is all about Jesus, but what about his authority? The end of verse 4, notice he refers to him as Jesus Christ, our Lord. That he is Jesus, that speaks of his humanity. That he is Christ, that speaks of his deity and his royalty. But that he is Lord, this speaks of his authority. The word there, it's kurios in Greek. And it's the relational counterpart for that word that Paul has used to describe himself back up in verse 1. Doulos, servant, bond slave. He says, I'm the bond slave, doulos, of Jesus Christ, who is Kurios. He is Lord. He has authority over my life. I'm living my life now in submission to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, who has a claim over my life. I've been purchased by His blood. And that brings up the very important question for you. Can you say that Jesus Christ is really your Lord? It's one thing to say that the gospel is good news. It's another thing to say that it's good news for me. It's one thing to say that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's another thing for you to say Jesus Christ is my Lord. I personally have bowed the knee to Jesus. Is he truly the Lord of your mind and your thoughts? 
Is he the Lord of your will and your decision-making in life? Can you say that he's the Lord of your time and your ambitions, your plans? Is he the Lord of your relationships? Is he the Lord of your involvement in the church? Hey, here's a good word for an election year. Can you say that he's the Lord of your vote? To where the gospel and the lordship of Jesus Christ even informs the way that you're involved in society around you. And let me tell you what that means. It means that somewhere along the way, your lordship to Jesus Christ is going to come first before your commitment to any political party or ideal. And let's just be honest, there are certain claims that Jesus Christ has he's laid upon my life and that which I know to be true, I will not apologize for it. I will not back up and punt over it. I'm going to declare his truth, even if it costs me points with the culture. Why? Because he's the Lord. He's the Lord. Is he the Lord of your money? When that offering plate comes around on Sunday morning, is he the Lord of your money? Preacher, I wish you'd get back to preaching on politics there for a second. That's a little bit too personal. Paul wants us to know that God is the source of the gospel. Christ is the subject of the gospel. There's a third thing that he says. He says that the supply of the gospel is salvation. The provision of the gospel, it's salvation. And notice he says that it's through whom? Through the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel that we've received grace. And I love that phrase in verse number five, through whom we have received grace. I could preach an entire sermon just from that phrase, we have received grace. So the gospel, which has God as its source and his son as its subject, leads to salvation, which is its gracious supply. It's through Christ that we have grace. Marvelous grace. Wonderful grace. Amazing grace. It's through Christ that we've obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. That word grace, it means unmerited kindness. Unmerited favor. And it's what makes Christianity different from any other approach to spirituality and religion. Grace is the basis of the gospel. I read something from the life of C.S. Lewis. If you're familiar with C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, you know that he was a brilliant, brilliant scholar. But before he came to faith in Jesus, he was a committed atheist. But C.S. Lewis was converted to faith in Christ and I read about how one day he was walking through the corridors there at Oxford University where he was a professor, and he heard someone call out his name from a classroom. And so upon entering the classroom, he discovered that some of his colleagues were gathered together, and they were listing out on the blackboard all the things that the world's religions have in common. And there on the blackboard were words such as morality, accountability, prayer, works, And so knowing that he was a Christian, they challenged C.S. Lewis to name one thing that Christianity believes that was not already listed on the blackboard. And so he went to the board, looked at their list, took a piece of chalk, and he wrote out one simple word on the board, and it was this word, grace. 
C.S. Lewis understood that grace is what separates, distinguishes Christianity from any other religion. That's what the Apostle Paul understands. It's what you and I understand if we've come to know Jesus as our Savior. So that at its core, the gospel is not good advice about what you and I do for God, but it's good news to be received in faith about what God has done for us in grace. Grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. Unmerited favor. Listen, you think about your own experience in your own life and how undeserving you are to be a recipient and a beneficiary of this wonderful grace of God. Let me ask you this question. Are you more undeserving than Paul? Because by his own admission, Paul in the New Testament says, I was the chief of sinners. I persecuted the church of God. He says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. There came a point in his life when he, he looked at his resume, which prior to meeting Christ, he put all of his confidence in his resume and his spiritual accomplishments. But he says in Philippians chapter 3, there came a point after meeting Christ, he said, all of that I viewed as just being rubbish, garbage. <laughs> Does it give me any standing with God? If there's to be any standing whatsoever with God, it's got to come as a gift from God's own grace. And the good news of the gospel is that you have standing with God, not on your own merit or your own basis, your own good deeds, but on the merit of Jesus Christ. Jesus in my place. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so the supply then of the gospel is salvation. The subject of the gospel, it's Jesus. The source of the gospel is God. And then one final thing that Paul mentions, notice he says that the stipulation of the gospel is faith. Faith. He says we've received grace and apostleship from Jesus Christ our Lord. Now listen to this. To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So that now the call of God on his life as the Apostle Paul was for the purpose of bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of Christ's name among the Gentiles. Now, you know, there are some who try to separate faith and obedience. And they want to reduce faith to nothing more than mentally agreeing with a set of facts, propositional truths. And it's certainly true that we do believe the truths of the gospel. And yet, that's one side of the coin. The other sign is obedience. By the way, James deals with this in his little letter, doesn't he? Faith without works is dead. So that what Paul is saying here is that if you truly have faith in Jesus Christ and you've truly come to believe the gospel, then that's going to result in obedience. A spirit-fueled, spirit-fed, spirit-led obedience in your life where you live your life under submission to Jesus Christ, your Lord. That doesn't mean you got it all together when you first come to Jesus, because none of us do. But it does mean that the longer that I serve him, the sweeter he grows. <laughs> and I come to understand just what it means when I say Jesus is Lord. I grow in my understanding of his lordship and his claim over my life. And so that's just the introduction. Paul has a lot to say in just the introduction, doesn't he, about this wonderful gospel. And now he gets to his subjects there in verses 6 and 7. 
This gospel applies to those who've been called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all of those in Rome who were loved by God and called to be saints. Imagine that you're one of those believers in the city of Rome. And word gets to you that you've received a letter from none other than the Apostle Paul himself. And then as you and perhaps your house church, you gather together and you assemble and you meet and you read the contents of this letter from the Apostle Paul, you pour over these first lines. This first sentence, which explains the precious nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then you get to these words, loved by God. You who are in Rome, loved by God. Rome was a difficult place. Rome was a dark place. It wouldn't be too much longer that Rome would be a place where Christians would be openly persecuted under Nero. Now, some of you are living in a difficult, dark place right now in your own life. I don't know who this is for, but this is for somebody this morning. Circumstances being what they are, you would say, things are difficult right now in my life. But listen, I've got good news for you. The gospel of God is wonderful news, precious news, that God loves you in Christ. And even though you're there in that dark place, that difficult place, you can be encouraged by the fact that you're loved by God. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Aren't you thankful for the gospel of God's Son? There's no greater news no greater news than the news of what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ to save us from our sin. The issue is, have you personally come to believe this gospel? Have you personally received it by faith? Have you personally called upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, confessing your sin, your need for Him, and in simple faith, saying, Lord Jesus, save me. I believe that you died for me on the cross and that you rose again from the dead and I confess you with my mouth that you are Lord. Here in just a moment as we sing, maybe for some of you, you respond and say, you know what, I, I need to be saved, Pastor. I need, to, I need to be saved. And you want to come, you want to pray with me or some of our pastors, even after the service, if you want to come find one of us, we'd love to talk to you about what it means to be a Christian. Maybe you've been visiting our church for some time and you believe that this is the church that God wants you and your family to be a part of. Our doors are wide open to receive you and we invite you to come this morning. Would you come pray with one of us? Pastor Mark's over here, Pastor Blythe. Lord, in Jesus' name, I'm so thankful for the gospel. Good news. And Lord, we live in a world that desperately needs to hear good news. And Lord, it's counterintuitive to our thinking to ever think that we could be encouraged by first of all, dealing with the honesty and the reality of our helpless, lost condition that we can't do anything to save ourselves from our sin. And that sin, it's far worse than what we think it is. Lord, we're not just sick in need of a little bit of therapy. We're dead and in need of resurrection. But that's what you've come to do in the person of your son. That's what the gospel tells us that you've done in Jesus. And so, Lord, thank you for the good news. 
Lord, take these truths. May they wash over our hearts and lives and our minds. Produce fruit within us, Lord, as your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.